welcome to the uh, John Jay Book and Author Series. This book that I am introducing, if you haven't read it, it is a good read. You have heard that uh, truth is sometimes stranger than fiction. There's no question about it in this case. You couldn't make this stuff up if you wanted to. Uh, this is a story of Marty Tankle. If, you, if, if, you, if you've lived in New York over the past two, three years, you've seen an array of articles in all of the newspapers about this case. In fact, you would have seen articles about this case going back to 1988, 1989. Um, and it is an absolutely fascinating case. Uh, let me say a little bit about who will, who will appear here on the panel and the, give you some background about the Marty Tankler case in general. Uh, first, I want to introduce Richard Firstman, who is the uh, first author of the book, A Criminal Injustice. Rick is a, an award-winning author. He was a, a, an editor and journalist at Newsday Magazine, has written other books, including The Death of Innocence, uh, and he and J. Saul Peter co-author of this book. Uh, he has written a number of books. He's appeared on a number of shows regarding these books. And I think if you get a chance to read this one, A Criminal Injustice, this will be one of these, I don't know how many pages of 600, 700, mm -hmm. six or 700 pages that you can't look down. Uh, I'm not, I've just about gotten to all So you will hear, you will hear, you will hear from Rick. And you will also hear from Jay Salpeter who is the investigator who essentially cracked this case wide open. After years in which everybody knew there was something wrong about this situation, uh, Jay is a, a, a highly decorated former NYPD detective, hostage negotiator, an investigator who is sought out uh, often, widely these days. He's also a John Jay graduate. What year? Oh my God, it's such a by the time I get up there, I'll figure it out. You have to say, you got to give the youth when he started and when he finished. <laughs> okay. I, I can appreciate the sensitivity, so I'm not even impressed. It did take me nine years to graduate. It did. <laughs> it took nine years to graduate. Um, he has appeared on a whole lot of shows, uh, Dateline, Fox, uh, Oprah, uh, regarding this case, in fact. Um, and he and Marty Tankler have just founded, and, and he is a, the founder of the Fortress Innocence Project, or the Fortress Innocence Group, which is going to be a, and is, a, uh, a private investigation firm devoted to overturning wrongful convictions in cases, for example, that the Innocence Project wouldn't take, because they may not be DNA, uh, and there is certainly the need for that. I have, I have seen dozens and dozens of compelling, what I believe to be wrongful convictions, that can't make their way to the Innocence Project because DNA was not involved. Uh, there will be a third panelist, uh, Bruce Barquette. He is a uh, well-known lawyer who's done a number of high-profile cases in Garden City, New York. Uh, Bruce probably knows this case about as well as anybody as well. Uh, he has just hammered in the pursuit of justice for Marty Tankler for many, many years. Let me say a little bit about this case. I, I know there's some of you know it cold and some of you just have surface knowledge. And, uh, there's little I can say to, to steal thunder from what's coming next. Uh, but this is an odd case, and I say it's an odd case because in most cases in which there are what are, are clearly to be proven false confessions, typically these are stories about innocent mistakes, 
innocent mistakes that cops make, that prosecutors make. Sometimes those mistakes are not perfectly innocent. There's some degree of motivated bias. Uh, and it's often hard to disentangle what, what role each played. This is a case about corruption, plain and simple. What animates the mistakes that are made in this case is corruption. And in, in this way, this case strikes me as very, very different than any other that I have seen. So let me say a little bit about it. Uh, it reaches back to the late 1980s in Suffolk County uh, when Marty Tankliff, who had just turned 17, I, I believe just four days before the crime was committed, uh, wakes up in the morning and sees lights on in the house, puzzles about that, finds his father uh, on the floor having been beaten and stabbed in a pool of blood, and he can hear him gurgling, he knows he's still alive. He uh, calls 911 immediately, uh, discovers his mother in the bedroom, clearly has the same fate, only she's dead at this point. And he is clearly the victim. He had just turned 17. You can only imagine the frame of mind he is in. And within a few minutes, uh, the detectives arrive from the 911 call, and the lead detective, a guy named James McCready, shows up. And as by his own statement, by his own report, he knew within minutes that Marty was the killer. Not because there was any solid evidence, not because there was any reason to believe it, not because Marty had a background, not because McCready heard anything, not because there was anything physical about it, not because Marty was full of blood, because none of those states existed. He got a hunch because Marty seemed relatively unemotional, seemed kind of listless. When he sat on the car, McCready put him on the car, he sat there with his hands clasped, as if these were in some ways indicators of deception and criminality. Uh, so McCready comes into it with a hunch, and immediately he hides Marty away in the car. Soon he takes him in for questioning. Now you have to understand Marty's state of mind at this point. 17, all he wants is to go to the hospital and be with his father. Not till we're done here. Not till we're done here. They go off to interrogation. Marty tells the story. They don't quite believe it. He tells it again, same story. Again, they don't believe it. There are two detectives present, McCready being one of them. He tells the story several times, and on each occasion he's being called a liar. His story doesn't make sense. That's what he's being told. Well, eventually, after several hours of these shenanigans, and I should say, Marty is isolated. He's not only in a, in a state, he's been brought in, he is barefoot, he's half-dressed, he doesn't have his glasses with him, uh, he's got no friend, no family member, no lawyer present. He's all alone with these two detectives. And they're calling him a liar. And he continues to tell the same story consistently over and over again. Well, part of that story was that he never even bothered to approach his mother because he knew she had died and he had already called 911. Uh, but then McCready comes in and tells him that, you know, it's clear that your mother was in a struggle and that there are hairs in her grasp and those hairs belong to you. We did the test. Those hairs belong to you. Well, that was a lie. What confused Marty? But it didn't confuse him enough to change his story. He doesn't know how that happened. Maybe he's scratching his head. Maybe, maybe I missed that. Maybe I forgot about that. But there was another detail that was problematic. The, the house has two crime scenes. And interestingly, these are two crime scenes without trails of blood between them. There's the father in the study. There's the mother in the bedroom. Both are gruesome scenes with blood all over the place. And except for one spot on his shoulder, Marty is clean. And that didn't make a lot of sense. 
And so the detectives kept insisting to, to Marty that he must have showered before calling 911. Cold-blooded killer that he is, he had the presence of mind not only to kill his parents, but then to shower and cover it up before making the phone call. Marty insisted that he did not. Well, eventually they tried to convince him that he did by suggesting that they had conducted a quote-unquote humidity test on the shower in his bathroom. To my knowledge, even CSI Miami doesn't have a humidity <laughs> test uh, to test that the shower was used. And ultimately, just to fast forward a little bit, they did check the shower and they checked the drain and there's no sign of blood anywhere. But again, it's a lie that confused Pankworth about the events because he's 17 and he's never been in trouble before. He's not violent. Uh, he's never had this kind of encounter with his police. And as far as he's concerned, police, if they tell him something about the evidence, it must be true because police don't lie about it. Well, finally, he's still not quite down and out. And at this point, Detective McCready leaves Marty in the interrogation room with his partner, goes off and stages a phone call. And he comes back, and remember, Marty just keeps asking about his father. And he, he comes back and he says to Marty, I've got essentially good news and bad news. The good news is, your father has regained consciousness. The bad news is, he said you did it. Well, that too was a lie. He never did regain consciousness. He died uh, shortly thereafter. Uh, and that just shook Marty at, at, at his core. He basically said, he said this on the witness stand at his own trial, that my father never lied, and if he said I did it, then I figured he must have, I, I must have done it. He simply couldn't reconcile it with his memory, and so sure enough, they get into a conversation about memory and consciousness and the possibility of committing an act like this so heinous without having a recollection of it. Now, to just make a very long story short, this confession part is where, is, is where I come in. Uh, Detective McCready goes off and handwrites a confession, and I'm going to put the word confession in quotes. He handwrites a statement that he says he got from Marty. The statement details what happened, how it happened, why it happened, uh, and it's three pages, and Marty never signs it. In fact, Marty comes to his senses and immediately retracts the entertainment or the idea that he had uh, confessed. He immediately retracts it. He never signs the statement. So there is, and you can, you can go to www.martytankwolf.org and see it for yourself. There is a three-page handwritten statement, handwritten by the detective. The facts contained within the statement are completely wrong as a description of the crime scene. Now, this is relevant. Why? Because they took this confession right then and there that day. The detective walked through the house, developed the theory of the case, the crime scene had not been analyzed yet, so he naturally was making some mistakes. His theory was wrong in some ways. He incorporates these incorrect details into the statement. The statement turns out to be an incorrect description of what happened. It is never signed. It is never corroborated. There never is any other evidence in this case. And on the basis of this statement that Detective McCready wrote that Marty did not sign, he was prosecuted, convicted, and in prison for, what, 17 or 18 years. That is the story, to me, about the power of confession and how toxic confessions can be. And come, come on up, come on up. You've been introduced. <laughs> this is that famous lawyer, Bruce yeah. Marquette, that I... You can't figure out the New York Sorry about <laughs> The Long Island guy, so... Um, in any event, as you can see, I've just tantalized you, believe it or not, with just a, a, a sliver of the details. This is just a crazy case. It's a crazy case about how Marty became a suspect in the first place on the basis of a hunch that McCready had. 
It's a crazy case about how a confession, so-called confession, can be taken from a kid in an interrogation room. Clearly, he knew he hadn't done it. And it's more important than anything else, and I think you'll see this from our panelists, it is a story about just how powerful confessions can be when it stands alone as the only evidence in the case, and ultimately, 20 years later, is contradicted by dozens of witnesses, mountains of evidence, and Marty, as far as I'm concerned, has not only been exculpated of this crime, he has been vindicated, and what I mean by that is, we all kind of know who did it. Uh, it's, it's of that character. So I'm gonna kind of leave the case there and, and let you fast forward 20 years with these gentlemen. Uh, and first, let me introduce you to one of the two authors of the book, of Criminal Injustice, Rick Firstman. Thanks, thanks for being here. Okay. Um, thank you, Saul, for that uh, great introduction and an excellent overview of the case. Uh, we should take you every book event we do, you should come and give 10 minutes overview and we'll take it from there. Uh, you really can, all the highlights of the original case, um, so I'll talk a little bit, you know, beyond the highlights. Um, it, it really is a crazy case and it really is about one thing, and that's corruption from beginning to end. Um, uh, beginning, you know, September 7th, 1988, and even before that, because Detective McCready uh, had perjured himself in a prior homicide case and was not only allowed to remain on the Suffolk County Police Department, not only allowed to remain on the Suffolk County Police Department homicide squad, but was allowed to be the lead detective in a case involving a 17-year-old kid that resulted in a wrongful conviction and his sentencing to 50 years in prison for the worst crimes imaginable, which he did not commit. Um, Marty, Marty, I'll start most recently. Uh, at the end of 2007, Marty's convictions were overturned by the New York State Appellate Division, a unanimous decision overturning a Suffolk County Court judge's decision that new evidence brought by the legal team with Bruce Barquette, evidence brought by my partner on the book, Jay Sal Peter, uh, a local judge finding that didn't amount to enough new evidence to overturn the conviction. We use the word corruption, that this decision was made by a corrupt judge. Uh, you hear corrupt, you think he's taking money. I have no evidence he took money for anything in his life, but I do know that the decision he rendered in this case was corrupt because it was completely opposite of the facts that were brought, <clears throat> uh, it was it was uh, against the interests of justice, and it was a decision that was, I think, dictated by the political powers of Suffolk County. Um, I think Bruce could probably talk some more about that if he wishes. Um, the case was overturned. The appellate judges uh, overturned it in language that that was extraordinary. Normally, uh, judges will render an opinion in very straightforward, neutral language. This, this is why this case is being decided this way. This is the law, these are the facts. Next. In this case, the judges issue an opinion in which, if you read between the lines, they are telling the Suffolk County judge that, I'll clean it up, what were you thinking? And do you have a, do you have, did you go to law school? Um, that occurred in December of 2007. 
uh, 19 years after the case began, and I'll kind of go back at this point to that. Marty's conviction uh, was overturned because of the work of um, Jay, my partner, um, a uh, tenacious investigator, a tenacious student, nine years to get to John Jay College. <laughs> he was working at the time, he, you know, he, he never gives up. And the work of um, uh, a wonderful legal team, uh, of which Bruce Barquette was, a, was a, an integral part. He and a, an attorney in Washington, Barry Pollack, were the, were the lead attorneys bringing the new evidence. Uh, to have the convictions overturned. Um, and, and the convictions were overturned you know, because of their work. What I'd like to do is go back to the original case and tell you what astounded me most about what happened here. And um, I found two things, and I'm, I'm kind of like glancing down. Usually when I do book things, I just sort of wing it and just talk. But we're in an academic institution, and I have, I have a lawyer here, and so I says notes, you know. And, I didn't make any notes. Um, I'd like to be a little more coherent than I like normally be. Um, so, um, you know, what I found most astounding, really sort of two basic things. One is that this was a case that was never investigated. So imagine a kid is, is prosecuted, convicted, sentenced to 50 years in prison uh, based on a case that was not investigated. It's pretty bizarre to think about. Um, the second thing uh, that really, really uh, hooked me when I began to research the book was that so much was known at the time that should have led to Marty's exoneration, a not guilty verdict. Um, it's all talked about uh, the, the, the circumstances of the confession and the forensics, and I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, uh, you know, as I said, as I researched the original case, by going back to uh, the trial, there were maybe five, 6,000 pages of transcript of the trial, another thousand from the Huntley hearing, which is a pretrial hearing to determine the admissibility of, of a, uh, an alleged confession, and then thousands of pages more from appeals, police documents, box loads of stuff. And <clears throat> what I found in, in the trial transcript, essentially, and I also watched that this was actually video uh, uh, shown live, the trial, on uh, the Long Island Channel, and it was also on uh, Court TV, and it was the first trial in New York State history to be covered gavel to gavel uh, after that was allowed by the Court of Appeals. Um, so, and I found somebody who had tapes in his basement, a friend of uh, Marty's father. So I watched, the, watched almost all the testimony, but I read every word of the testimony, and found that um, the, the evidence was right there. It was presented, the, the, the witnesses, the evidence, Robert Godley, the trial attorney, you know, I think presented all the evidence, gave a, a smashing summation, covering everything, and yet the jury convicted. And that's a whole other thing. When you look at you know why they convicted. I, I think you know basically you had, you had to be blunt about it. Um, you know, twelve knuckleheads. 
you know, uh, who actually, in their own words, uh, you know, talked about why they convicted, and they were they would cite evidence that actually didn't even exist. You know, they, they, one of them talked about, and this was in an interview with Newsday after the trial. Uh, you know, we weren't sure about what Marty said, so we went back to the, uh, we asked for a readback, and uh, he said this and this and this, and but he didn't say this, this and this. And uh, but going back to the uh, to, to the evidence, um, you know, amounting to you know reasonable reasonable doubt and, and beyond that, um, McCready. As Saul mentioned, uh, gets to the scene that morning, and uh, he's the first to show up, first detective. There are plenty of uh, plainclothes police, um, and focuses on Mark. And I'll, I'll sort of um, address one thing you said that uh, that he had a hunch. When I first began work on the book in the end of 2004, and for quite a while, I operated under the assumption that McCready had a hunch. That he, in fact, had had two prior cases involving teenagers and dead parents, in which the teenagers actually did kill the parents. So I figured, okay, here's a guy, he's a lazy, arrogant cop, with a bad history, he's had these cases, you know, he's swaggering, he comes up, he's a cup of coffee, I know what happened here. And in the ways of the Suffolk County Homicide Squad in those years, and let's, let's hope it was only in those years and not, not today. Uh, they, when they decided somebody was guilty, they would get a confession, whether they confessed or not. Sub County Homicide Squad in those years had a confession rate of 97%. 9700, they have 100 murder suspects. What would you say three years, they averaged about 30, 35 murders a year. 97 of them, they said, confessed. Newsday, my former employer, a couple of colleagues, named uh, Rex Smith and Tom Mayer did, a, did an excellent series in 1986 called The Confession Takers, in which they analyzed, they used computers to analyze the confession rate, and they found that while Suffolk had 97%, the average in comparable counties, including the neighboring county of Nassau, Orange County, California, averaged maybe 55% in a good year. And of course, the Suffolk County police said, well, we're just, we're better. What can we say? <laughs> Um, so, McCready gets there, the whole thing about the hunch, and Jay is going to talk about why it may be something other than a hunch, and whether McCready arrived at the scene that morning knowing more than anybody has ever known. Um, so that's, that's a question that I think actually will be um, uh, you know, looked at a lot more in the coming uh, coming months and years maybe uh, as a as civil litigation gets going and maybe something and maybe some, some good journalism hopefully. Um, the confession, so-called, which uh, one of the attorneys uh, uh, like to call a uh, concession, not a confession, where Marty kind of basically figured, you know, he didn't know what happened. He, he was questioning his own sanity and he kind of open the door for them by saying, well, I don't know, maybe, is that possible? And, but they took it, not only a step further, but many steps further in putting in his mouth the details of these crimes and then testifying these, these 
detectives McCready and his partner Norman Ryan, a year and a half, two years later at the trial, as well as the Huntley hearing, testifying for days on end, with mostly cross-examination, that the defendant then said that he went into the mother, his mother's bedroom and he picked up the knife and the defendant said he did this and did that. And it's all very, very seamless, as if Marty just sat there very casually telling them, you know, what he had for breakfast. And testifying, uh, in other words, committing perjury hour after hour. And I have no, you know, reservations about saying that. Um, the written confession uh, that Saul mentioned was written by McCready, and it was written later. Marty didn't even know of its existence until weeks later when his attorney showed it to him. So what, what looks like happened is they came up with a story of a confession. They wanted him to sign it, but finally a lawyer called and, and stopped everything. So there was sort of a stopped in mid-sentence, but Marty did not sign it. He did not initial any Miranda, even though there was a space for an initial, and, and never even knew about it until later. So, is it a confession? You know, call it what you will, but I think it was, uh, you know, not, not the truth, that's for sure. Now, the forensics, two crime scenes. Uh, you have the study, the, the, the father's office at one end. This is, a, this is a, a, a ranch house overlooking Long Island Sound in Beltair, Long Island. And very large house. So you have the office, and then you have a solarium, you have a kitchen, you have the living room and den, and hallways, and finally the bedroom area. And, excuse me, uh, as Saul mentioned, uh, you know, they have Marty describing this, this these murders, where uh, I got up, I decided I was gonna kill my parents because I was mad at them, because I don't like my car, they didn't let me use the boat enough, they wanted, this guy to stay with me when they went on a cruise. Uh, I didn't set up the card table for my father and he got mad at me. And so listen, all these sort of petty teenage grievances, real or not, as his motive for, for murdering his parents. And they claim that he said that he decided to wake up that, the next morning and, uh, and kill them. And he, and he got the knife and he, he got a dumbbell from his room them, slashed them, and went back and forth, and blood dripping, he did it naked so he wouldn't have any clothes, then he went to take a shower, and he washed off his, himself, as well as the murder weapons. Okay, so the forensic evidence is the following. Uh, how much blood in between, you know, he's going back and forth, right? Dripping with blood, he's naked, dripping, the weapons are dripping. How much blood is in between the two crime scenes? Not a molecule. Um, they take the the knife, it's a kitchen knife. Uh, they take it apart, inspect it microscopically, several rounds of chemical tests, no blood or body tissue. Same thing with the dumbbell. You, you wash everything off in the shower, right? They, they take the plumbing out, the whole the drain trap, the whole thing with the water, the residual water and soap scum and hairs, and find that the hairs in there have been there for a long period of time. No blood or body tissue. Everything in this so-called confession is disproven. Uh, they, the, the crime scene found blood, uh, there was blood prints around the light switch in Marty's room. And they were, they were uh, examined under a microscope and found to be 
with a, uh, a rubber glove pattern. Uh, no gloves ever found. Now they weren't specifically looking for gloves because it would be many weeks before the lab would come back and say that the prints, you know, that the blood prints had that pattern. But once they did, they went back and then searched again. The grounds, inside, outside the house, no gloves. Um, so, you know, all of this was known. So it, it really that you know, amazed me as I kind of made my way through this that he could have been convicted with all of this. Um, but I think that you know one thing that I was really wanted to do, and I feel like um, I hope I did, and I think I did, was to sort of lay this all out for the first time. Um, you know, whether you know, newspapers or, or or TV, I don't think that the detail of it has been you know, completely revealed. Um, As far as the case, you know, not being investigated, the, the forensics, they, it was investigated, and that investigation revealed that Marty was innocent, as far as I'm concerned. And, um, but what they did not investigate was suspects other than Marty. Um, you know, I just want to cite a couple of things about what, what the police did. Um, you know, we had, Jay was able to get, um, Police, all the police reports from the original case, all the detectives' reports. Um, you know, it's not, it wasn't private; it was put into the, into the record from the uh, the case. But it's very revealing. Uh, on the day of the murders, while Marty was at police headquarters, uh, two other detectives from the squad went to talk to all the card players. I don't know if I mentioned the, the uh, there was a big card game the night before, and. Uh, did we talk about Stuartman? I, I don't no. know if you mentioned actually. Yes, we should. Um, who, who actually did this? Uh, Marty's father uh, had lent half a million dollars to a man named Jerry Stuartman, and they were kind of business partners in the way that loan sharks are business partners with people they lend their money to. And from the first moments, Marty told everybody, from, from uh, the neighbors to the, uh, the emergency squad, the police, uh, officers and the detectives, including McCready, that he knew who, who did this and was Jerry Stewart because they had been fighting for months. They, his father was trying to get half a million dollars back, all kinds of problems. And yet they never, they never, by their own account, police said he was never a suspect. And on that day, uh, the, the detectives who uh, interviewed the, the poker players finally got around to, to talking to McCready. And it was a 20 minute interview. And, this detective named Anderson writes, having knowledge of Martin Tankless accusations of Jerry Stuman that he made at the scene, it is this officer's opinion and also the opinion of Detective Legeza, his partner, after interviewing Mr. Stuman that he should not be considered a suspect in this homicide. 20 minutes. Okay. And McCready and his partner a couple of days later, covering the bases, go back and interview Stuman again. And again it's 20 minutes. Bagel shop. They sit, eat bagels, and drink, drink coffee. And um, from the record, it appears that uh, McCready and Ryan did not ask Sturman a single question about the business relationships, let alone problems with Sturman and, and Tankler. And uh, it ends. What, what McCready and Ryan wrote in their report. Uh, even though by this point, now this is two days later, so not only Marty, but all the family members and others really in the community were talking about Stuerman, 
uh, what, what Ryan wrote, it warranted uh, one sentence in Ryan's report of that, of that interview, and it was, Stewartman said that he is a business associate of friend, uh, and friend of both Seymour and Arlene Tanko. That's it. So, you know, you talk about a textbook investigation. I guess you could call it a textbook of how not to investigate a murder. Um, 20, well, how many years later? Uh, 15, 20 years later, um, McCready was interviewed by Aaron Moriarty of 48 Hours. 48 Hours did, did wonderful um, uh, stories on this case. And her interview with McCready stands as to, the, to this point, uh, one of the most memorable uh, things in this case. Uh, and essentially, she cross-examined him. Aaron is a, uh, is a lawyer by training, non-practicing lawyer, went into journalism, um, and sat with McCready. One thing about McCready is he never tires of talking about this to anybody who asks anybody with a microphone or a notepad or a camera, which has been, has been great for pretty much everybody sitting here. It's been, I think it's been great for, for Marty's case. It was great for those of us trying to examine uh, you know, what went on here. Um, but I, I'd like to just read you a little bit of, um, of, of that interview with, um, between Aaron Margaret Moriarty and, and uh, James McCready. Um, Uh, okay. So she asks, um, why were there no marks on Marty, you know, considering the, the, the victims? Uh, and McCready says, it doesn't necessarily mean he's going to have injuries. Was there any physical evidence tying Marty to either of his parents' bodies? I don't recall. Moriarty says it wasn't. And McCready says, why would there be? More important, it was Marty's demeanor, he said. He, uh, he said, he was sitting as calm as could be. The conversation developed. I could see that he was just, he was lying. And how did you know that, Moriarty asked. It's not so much the way what is said, it's the way in, the way in which it's said. And Moriarty points out that after his, uh, his own lies to Marty that, that morning in the interrogation room, uh, McCready and his partner refused Marty's pleas to be polygraphed. And so she says to him, so you're, you're better at telling whether someone's lying? And he says, oh, I think I'm better than a polygraph machine. <laughs> so uh, I have to continue a little bit. With, uh, she says, if Marty wanted to kill his dad, and remember, she, he calls 911, his father's still alive and lived another month, right? Uh, she, she asks, if Marty wanted to kill his dad, why would he call 911 he was still alive? And McCready says, I don't think he knew his father was still alive. And his, his father's his girlie, he's obviously still alive. Um, and she says, but he could hear him gasping. And McCready says, he was brain dead. <laughs> but he was gasping, Moriarty repeated. Why would Marty call 911? Well, you'd have to ask Marty that. And Moriarty asks uh, McCready to explain how the forensic evidence disproved the details in the confession. And, and McCready says, well, every confession doesn't have to have 100% of the truth in it. What about the gloves, she asks. I don't know. And that doesn't concern you? No. Why would Marty kill his parents? Why? One of the simplest things in the world, greed. Well, Marty's, uh, we get all of the inheritance from his parents, but not for eight years. He's only 17. 
And she asked McCready, were you aware of that? And he says, no, I was not. I was not. Again, do you think he investigated this guy? Uh, she asked him about the relatives, all the relatives talking about Stewerman and knowing Marty and knowing that he couldn't have done this and knowing what was going on. And she asks uh, if, if, uh, if uh, he spoke to the relatives. And he, he said he did. Of course, he didn't. And she says, are you saying they're lying, the relatives who said that they were never spoken to? And he says, yes. And she says, did you ask to speak to them? And they said, no. And he says, no, well, I never directly asked to speak to them. I didn't have to. But what are they going to add to my case? And she's incredulous at this point, Aaron. And she says, Jim, isn't it important to talk to everybody before you settle on someone when you know their entire life could be ruined by this? No, says McCready. Under the circumstances, in this case, everything we needed to know, we pretty much knew the first day. So, you know, uh, what can you say? Um, I'm going to turn this over to, to uh, my partner and co-author, uh, Jay, uh, to talk about <coughs> what happened when he came into the case, how he got into the case, and uh, a little bit about what happened in the course of the seven years that he put in trying to dig up what really happened here and ultimately uh, how it led to Marty's exoneration. Jay? December 21st, 2000, I re Marty Tankworth wrote me a letter, which I received in early January. On December 21st, 2007, to the day the New York State Appellate Court overturned Marty's conviction. So, if I did seven years on Tankworth and nine years of John Jay, you can see I'm pretty slow at certain things. <laughs> now, the reason I, I would just want to straighten out to John Jay, nine years because it was in the police department. Uh, when John Jay opened up, I went to the school. I was in the New York Police Academy, the Police Department, Police Academy. So it was split classes, day and night, which I think you still do now, correct? But that, that's why it took me nine years. I'm, I'm not that slow. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so that's what happened. But as I said, that letter changed my life, and I think it changed a lot of other people's lives. You know, Marty's defense team, who for, for as long as I worked at seven years, including Bruce. I mean, it was an amazing journey that I took. Uh, in a million years, I could never, ever imagine what would happen. And thank God it ended with, uh, matter of fact, Mr. Tank was sitting in the back of the room here. So Marty's here today. I'm not going to speak that long because I, I know since I've been doing some of these uh, book, you know, signings, many people have a lot of questions. But I just want to say a couple of things. Many people over the course of the years since Marty's been has been released, you know, come up to me and say, "What a great job you did!" I mean, he's here, you know, because of work you did. Well, that, that's part of it, but it's not all true. Marty is here today because of all the witnesses that came forward and testified for getting a return of nothing. And we could not give them immunity, we could not protect them. They came forward and they helped this young man and that's why Marty's here today. I mean, Marty's defense team, I did my job, Bruce and the other attorneys 
did a great job of the court, you know, presenting the evidence. And it was a fight that, uh, you know, an amazing seven-year journey. And I've been vocal on a couple of things, which sometimes gets me in trouble, but I think, you know, if you look at what happened here, I think the only reason Marty Tankook lived that day was to be arrested. I, I have no doubt in my mind, and I think we presented some of this evidence, and we still have some to present, hopefully, that Detective James McCready arrested Marty, put him away, they put him away for life, and thank God that there was no, you know, the death penalty was not enacted in this case, that McCready arrested Marty to take care of his friend Jerry Stillman. McCready testified at Marty's trial that he didn't know Jerry Stillman. In our investigation, we proved, and we still have other witnesses, that have placed McCready and Stillman together before the murders. So the word hunch, everyone has an opinion. This is my opinion. And I, I think at the end of the day, we're, we're, I'm hoping that we can prove that McCready was part of this. And I'm hoping someday that McCready will be where Marty should not have been. And that's in prison. The witnesses that came forward and, and what got me going in this case, in Marty's letter, he asked me to come work for him. Like everyone else, can you work pro bono? I'm not as affluent as many of Marty's attorneys in Baker Potts, Nixon Peabody. So I said, let me take a look at the case. And it was a Bob Godley, Marty's first attorney, gave me the opportunity to look at the case. And I went with a fellow by the name of Charles Haas, who's a New York City retired crime scene specialist. And what we both saw there was an amazing thing. Marty's case was never, ever properly investigated. I mean, Marty was taken prisoner. A confession, he was arrested on a confession where not one thing in the confession fit the crime scene. Now, I've taken many confessions as a detective, but you like to have one or two things in, in the confession that fit the crime scene. Not one thing to the murder weapon, to, to the order of which Marty's parents were assaulted and subsequently, you know, passed on. The blood, no blood evidence. It was just totally ridiculous. So we started the journey and I started you know, I spoke to Marty, and I said, Marty, you know, if you did this crime, I can't help you. Marty's legal remedies were exhausted when I came into this case when Marty wrote for me. And Marty, without blinking an eye, said, Jay, I didn't do it. Please work. And that's what started my journey here. And, I, you know, I'm not going to go into the 20-some-odd witnesses that came forward. Some... You know, some included Joe Creighton, who was named as one of the participants of the family, of the people that killed Marty's family. His son came forward. We had other participants, you know, that were part of, of a mishit on Marty's crime. I found the driver of the car for Marty's crime. And this is exactly what opened us up, up this case. And many people came forward. Some were found by myself. Some, watching it on the news, came forward. And that's why Marty's here today. I mean, it's the people that came forward to testify on Marty's behalf that allowed Marty to be released today. So I, I, what I'm going to do is, I, I, you know, I'm sure many of you have many questions, and that's how we really, you know, fill a lot of time in, in these book signings or talks. But before we do that, I want to present 
someone that you know was one of the most important people to you know for Marty to be here today too. It's Bruce Marquette. Now how Bruce came into this case after you know I found Glenn Harris, who was the driver of the car, and some other evidence. You know, I figured we're going to need local counsel because most of Marty's attorneys were in Washington. So I think it's been a long trip. We're going to have to have someone a little closer. And I asked Bruce, you know, Bruce basically if he'd be willing to become, you know, part of Marty's defense team. And to Bruce's credit, we we received one of the best attorneys, you know, to work for Marty. And Bruce is a phenomenal attorney. He's a former national prosecutor. And God forbid if I ever got in trouble, you know, and I might with this case, I'm going to call Bruce Barkett to, to help me. So, uh, Bruce Barkett. I don't know about not winging it. If it wasn't for winging it, I wouldn't have got through college, law school, grade school, <laughs> any of that. Uh, most of the people here are you. Um, Students here and thinking about becoming police officers uh, or going into the justice system, I presume. I just want to talk about two quick things and not really get into too much of the details of the case. Uh, two things. Well, one that should be patently obvious to everyone. We're not God or gods. Police officers, current, future, or past, are not gods. And the reason why I say that is, when we walk into a case as a lawyer, as an investigator, as a police officer, as a judge, a juror, whatever role you have, you don't know what took place. You may suspect. You may have an idea. You may have a hunch. It may be right. It may be wrong. But you don't know. There are rules in place in the entire judicial system that's set up to try to figure out what's truth and what's fiction. And what happens here, and it's not just in Marty's case, it happens throughout the system. You see it in the media where people are condemned the day they are arrested and indicted in the press. They, they committed the crime, there's not any doubt about it in anybody's mind who's reporting. The prosecutor gets up and talks about this wonderful body of evidence they have, and they give a press conference, and that's it for the individual. Um, and then, the police go about trying to prove what they know to be certain without any doubt in their mind. And that happened to Marty here within two hours. If you really get into the details of what McCready said, he knew in his mind, you know, even if you don't accept Jay's hunch that he was in on it, and I, and I don't know if there's evidence to support that ultimately or not, that's something for another day. But just assume he's just this overzealous, lazy detective. He knew the second he walked in, according to him, that Marty did this. His view then is that all the rules that are in place, Miranda rights, tricking people, lying to people, coercion, are just obstacles for him to get at the devil. And in this case, the devil was Marty, somebody who murdered his parents. And that always, that always, that theory or that idea always bothered me. But it's not new. It kind of has a hint of the ends justifies the means. And it goes, how many people here know Man for All Seasons? Uh, the play about, about Thomas More? There, there is a, a um, fairly, I pulled it out. I, just, I happened, I didn't know I was going to do this, but I happened to have it with me in another context. There's a scene in there where um, More, 
is arguing with his future son-in-law, Roper, about whether or not he, Moore should go after uh, this person, Rich, who ultimately will betray him. And he lets Rich walk out. And Roper says, why did you let him leave? And Moore says, he's broken no law. And Rich said, you'd give the devil his due, give the devil the benefit of the law? And Moore says, of course I would, wouldn't you? And Rich says, no, I cut down every law in the forest to get at the devil. And Moore classically responds, and when the last law was down and the devil turned around on you, where would you hide, Roper? The law is all being flat. This country's planted thick with laws from coast to coast, man's law, not God's. And if you cut them down and you're just the man to do it, do you really think you could stand upright in the winds that would blow then? And what that means is the laws, the rules about how things are supposed to be done, textbook con uh, investigations, how confessions are supposed to take place, are there to protect people, protect innocent people, protect guilty people, protect everybody, because at the beginning you don't know. You may think, but you don't know. And as a detective, you don't get to be judge, jury, and executioner. You don't get to essentially frame the person because you concluded they deserve to be framed. And unfortunately, that's exactly what happened in this case to Marty in its best light. Without dealing with Jay's hunch, in its best light, they concluded that Marty was the devil. The other thing that I want to speak about, just generally, is truth versus finality. And all of you right now would say to me, I would bet, if I gave you the choice between uh, the truth, finding out the truth of a criminal case, or having a criminal case finally end, you'd all pick truth, I would hope. The system picks finality by definition, by rule, by law. They do not want, the system can't handle cases coming in, new cases, hundreds of them, thousands of them, having to deal with them, and then they go, if you can think of them, uh, the, the I love Lucy scene. Everyone's seen that with the chocolates, right? <laughs> That's the criminal justice system. Imagine that the, the chocolates that went down came back around. It would just double up over and over and over again. The system couldn't stand under the weight of all those cases. So once a person's convicted, it's a very, very, very difficult uh, matter to get the case overturned. Once the appeals have been heard, the initial appears, appeals have been heard, it's almost impossible. People come to me and say, will you help me? And because of Marty and a few other cases I've been involved in, I get a lot of pleas from what I call Lazarus. And, and I'm a New Testament guy. We all knew Lazarus is, was dead and in the tomb, and Jesus rose him from the dead. And unfortunately, people come to me and say, can you help? And I say, sure, where, what stage are you at? And they say, well, I've lost all my direct appeals. I filed a 440 in state court, and I've lost my federal habeas, and I'm completely out of money. But I'm innocent. <laughs> and, and, and unfortunately, at that point in time, they're Lazarus, and I'm not Christ. Right? So there's not a lot we can do. But this system ought not have uh, be set up in such a way as to make it impossible for people to make actual claims or claims of actual innocence. And to that end, Marty's case in Suffolk County uh, was a quintessential example of what happens in the criminal justice system. Marty was wrongly convicted. The uh, appellate division, uh, the first court to hear his case, split 2-2 um, whether or not the conviction should be reversed. 
the presiding judge brought in a fifth justice who voted for the prosecutor. Marty's conviction was upheld. It went to the Court of Appeals. It was upheld. He went to the federal courts. It was upheld. He challenged the confessions, the jury selection process, DNA evidence, how the investigation took place, undisclosed exculpatory material, filed every motion you could think of, went up and down the state and federal courts, never say die, kept going and going and going for 10 or 12 years, actually 12 years or so, before he came into jail. And the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office, and really the Suffolk County law enforcement community, said, we've had enough of him. We have enough chocolates or cases coming in. This one's done. So what they did when we filed our 440 motion, and you have to recognize that what took place here was that we brought this new evidence to them in October, really August of 2003. Marty wasn't released until December of 2007. That's four and a quarter years. Look, you can blame the jury for the first 13 years of his incarceration. I blame the Suffolk County law enforcement community for those last four and a half when they fought bitterly to keep him in jail. And what their plan was, and it was almost explicit, is you put on every witness that you want. You put on every little bit of hearsay and new evidence that you can find. And the judge is going to find all those witnesses incredible. No appellate court is going to overturn credibility findings by a trial court. And we'll be done with Marty for once and for all. And their version of truth and finality was that we were going to finish Marty at this time. And believe me, that was an explicit plan by them. They virtually told it to me when we had private discussions. Unfortunately, they didn't know that Jay was going to dig and dig and dig and dig. And there wouldn't be one witness, two witnesses, even 12 or 15. There'd be 20 some odd. And then eventually, an appellate court who looked at this said, we can't keep him in jail. And ultimately, the system spit Marty out. Not because they think the criminal justice system did its job. It did not. It was a remarkable and distinct failure here. Ultimately, the justice system spit Marty out to salvage its own credibility. That too much publicity, too much light had been brought in this case. Too many people knew the truth. And the system would have been tainted if it tried to continue to incarcerate Marty. So it gave us one back to continue with the new scripture or the New Testament references. Barabbas, right, will free one. And you'll have this illusion that there's justice. There is, unfortunately, not. It tends to be just one big arbitrary train wreck, unfortunately. Marty was remarkably unlucky in the prosecution, his conviction, and his incarceration. And remarkably lucky that he is one of the few who are innocent, who was able to get out of prison, albeit 17 and a half years later. Well, I've now represented the Jewish community. What I'm going to ask you now, I'm sure many of you are familiar with Marty's case. I think we have a good panel here that will be able to answer most of your questions. So let's open it up to you guys. Yes? You know, you did a good job of firing everybody up to get mad at the police. And 
you know, you established that McCready is Phil Van Adder of this case, but, you know, in all due respect to Marty, what establishes Marty that isn't, you know, that he isn't the O.J. Simpson of the case? Because you brought, you brought the case forward, okay, there's the constitutional errors here. Um, there's the errors with the confession, there's the errors with the investigation, there's conflict of interest, but what's the exculpatory evidence that, you know, you bring forward that says, okay, this is finality, and this clears Marty's name? That's number one. Number two is, how was the con what was the argument to the confession why it couldn't get thrown out? Because it seems pretty amateur that someone would have looked at this to say, okay, you know, it's pretty obvious, you know, bringing someone into a police station with no shoes on is in itself is an accusatory process. You can't be free to go if you have no shoes. So your comments well, okay, uh, I'll answer the first part, and then I'll let Bruce answer the second part about the legality of the confession. Uh, I, I think at the close of, of day, why the appellate court overturned Marty's conviction, uh, there's no finality with, unfortunately, you know, Marty's parents are still gone, and there's no one in jail to pay for, for, for their, uh, you know, their murders. But I have no doubt on my mind that what we did present with all these witnesses, we have, we named them. In, in the 440 hearing, the evidence that I was able to bring, and I'm very comfortable, I think, you know, I have it, Marty's legal team has it, that we named Peter, you know, Peter Kent, Joe Creedon as the participants in the home, Glenn Harris as the driver of the car. I am very comfortable that my case, my investigation is a lot more compelling than Marty's confession, which to me is not a confession. It's the detective's version of what happened in the house. And you know what? He got caught. I mean, it just didn't go down that way. And how do we know that? By the people that, you know, have come forward. One of them is Joe Creedon's own, own son, who Joe basically, admit, uh, you know, admitted to his son what had happened. So the first part, I'm very comfortable. I think, uh, you know, I've solved the case. Or, you know, unfortunately, Attorney General doesn't feel that we have enough to, to bring an indictment. But, you know, as an investigator, I'm not an attorney. So a lot of what I'm going to tell you is my opinion. In a million years, I don't know why these people have not been arrested yet. But I do know why he was arrested on a bullshit confession that never fit the crime scene. So with regards to the confession, I'm going to let Bruce answer your second part of the question. Well, it's actually, in, it's actually an interesting part of what you asked. is that the, When I said before that the appellate court, the first appellate court that heard Marty's con, con, uh, case, split 2-2, two, two, and they split 2-2 two, two right along the lines that you spoke of. Two of the judges said that Marty was in custody, had not been read his rights. So when he uh, supposedly first made the statements of, could I have done it and blacked out or something along those lines, uh, and they continued to question him that he was in custody and any of the statements should have been suppressed. The other two judges said, no, he was not in custody. He was free to leave because any reasonable person who uh, was told by two homicide detectives in a homicide squad where you were sitting, 17 years old, that your father just said you murdered your mother and tried to kill him, would be free to say, you know, I got some things to do. I'm going to catch you all later, and I'm going to get up and go now. Um, that's absurd, and um, it, it harkens back to what I said before about uh, the laws being cut down to get at the devil. What makes you think those two judges, three, who voted to keep Marty's confession in evidence, kept him in jail for another... 15 years or so, didn't understand that basic common sense that we all just got now. And the answer is they thought he did it and they weren't going to let a murderer go. They were playing God. 
And the irony of this, and it just shows how bizarre our legal system is, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, the federal Second Circuit that controls New York, said that um, the two, that, that Marty was in fact in custody um, when they got the case, and that it only made sense that he was in custody, but under federal law, the subsequent waiver of his Miranda rights, according to the police, made the first inculpatory statements harmless. So what they said happened was um, he said he did it, he was questioned, uh, no rights were read, then they read him his rights, and then he said he did it again, so it doesn't matter that the, he said he did it the first time, and under federal law that's good, but the Second Circuit said under state law, in New York, the state constitution, that's not okay. You can't cure uh, the questioning without rights with rights five minutes later, and suggested that the state court should take another look at this, and the state court said, yeah, well, yeah, thanks very much, we're leaving him where he is. Um, and and, and it just, it's a bizarre thing concerning the confession, and it's impossible to walk you through all of the evidence here, uh, but I can tell you this, that we were able to put together uh, eight or nine or ten different people who didn't know each other, who didn't know each other existed, or hadn't seen each other in a decade or more, all of whom had one thing in common. They had one piece of an inculpatory puzzle that pointed the finger at Joe Creedon, Peter Kent, Glenn Harris, and Jerry Stewart. We accused four people of murder. None of them could account for their, for their whereabouts that night. Stunningly, none of them were in jail. None of them were on a videotape at a 7-Eleven. None of them were on vacation. And we had a substantial body of evidence implicating them. That coupled with the fact that, as Jay said, the confession was utterly detached from the crime scene. Everything from the, the weapons were wrong to how the sequence of who was killed first was wrong uh, led the appellate court eventually to conclude that had a second jury heard this new evidence, they would have acquitted Marty. And I'd invite people, I mean, we're here to lecture about this, but there's also a book. Read the book and you will see the overwhelming amount of evidence that uh, establishes Marty's innocence. And I'll tell you, he's been in my home overnight. He's in my office. I consider him a friend. He's been around my kids. The, the, my my three-year-old knows that I'm a lawyer, and I get people out of trouble, and she says to me, when she saw Marty on TV, what did Mr. Marty do? <laughs> and I kind of hesitated a bit, and my first reaction was, well, actually, nothing, but that's a much longer story. <laughs> yeah, and, and she looks up at me and says, I know, I bet he spit. Because she gets into a lot of trouble for that. So at, at this point, she thinks that Marty spit, and I helped him get out of that trouble. And then in a couple of years, we'll say they read the book. But you know, uh, just to sort of you know, add to that, to, to speak to kind of the exculpatory evidence and sort of tie it to Bruce's point about this, this Suffolk County uh, system keeping Marty in another four years, um, and Jay will talk to you right now, what happened on October... I think it was 7th of 2003, when Peter Kent, who was named as one of the two murderers, was, was uh, brought in by the Suffolk County DA and an investigator for the DA's office, and told for the first time, he was in jail at the time on some, some other thing, and was actually, for getting in a fight, he was in this isolated unit, and had not been exposed to the news that had come out a week earlier that Glenn Harris, the driver, was naming Peter Kent and Joe Creedon as the murderers. And so the assistant DA and the investigator have Peter Kent in front of them and are telling him for the first time that Harris is 
is naming them. And Jay, why don't you tell everybody what, what happened next? Well, let me just describe Peter Kent. Peter Kent is like a six foot three mound of muscle. I mean, he is one scary figure. Now, when they told, you know, when Linda later, the district, district attorney came in with the Detective Walker thing, what does Peter Kent do? He started crying. He just started crying. Why did he cry? Well, he figured they had him finally. Now, if, the, if the, this prosecutor and this detective were doing their job, Marty would have been out of jail a lot sooner. They had Peter Kent. I mean, if I was walking in there as a detective and he starts crying, I would have spoken to him and tried to make some sort of deal. He was a participant in the murder. And the Suffolk District Attorney's Office put him into a comfort zone and said, Peter, don't worry about it. We know you didn't do it. Can you believe that? And the one person that paid the price was Monty Tanker for an additional couple of years because of what they did that day. That day, this case could have ended. Yes? What is the age that you can detain a person and get a confession? It, it's actually any age, but if the person is under 16, under 16, oh, so under 15 or younger in New York, their parent has to uh, be present and also sign off on the waiver of the Miranda rights. Because he was close to 17. He, he, he was just to turn 17. Just turn 17. I was curious. Thank you. Yes. I'm Simon Zeller. I'm a student teacher researcher here at John Jay. Um, I'll bring you Old and New Testament guys together. That question, I can't even imagine what hell it's just, it's, you're right. Whoever said the system did not succeed is absolutely right. This is an incredibly unimportant question. Um, I'm just curious, actually. You lost your parents, and Marty lost his parents. What about his inheritance? Um, I'm assuming that because he's convicted of murder, he lost his inheritance. And is, are there steps going to be taken? And please explain to a non-lawyer just very quickly what a 440 hearing is. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> a 440 hearing is um, after your direct appeals from your trial are over, if you find new evidence, there's a section in the criminal procedure law that allows you to bring the new evidence back to the trial court and ask for a new trial. And it's a post-judgment hearing. There's different names for it. But the section is 440 of the criminal procedure law. So I guess us lawyer types refer to it as a 440 hearing. But that's really the hearing that you may get uh, to put on the new evidence for the judge to determine whether or not uh, there's sufficient evidence to uh, warrant a new trial. And as far as the inheritance goes, um, it ended up being resolved out of court in a way where Marty himself didn't get any of it. Um, and his stepsister, who would not have gotten any but for the conviction, took some of that money and went into business and bought a bar with the lead detective, McCready, with the inheritance that she got uh, because Marty was convicted. Um, and I kid you not about that, but that's what ended up happening. When Saul said you can't make some of this thing, you know, some of this story up, he is right. And that's just one small part of it. And it's not even the most no, horrifying part. Of it. I mean, that's just, just, just a minor part. I mean, what goes on in, in Marty's unfortunate career in prison is amazing. And what the defense team more or less went through to, to get him out, 
you know, dealing with the Suffolk County system was just amazing. Yes? I've got three questions. One is, um, uh, how could Marty pay for his 10, 15 years of investigators and attorneys, people helping him? What was, uh, how was that done? I know when you're reading through thousands and thousands of pages of documents, this is taking, you know, just thousands of hours communications, phone calls, he's in prison calling collect, and in those days it was very expensive over the years. Um, first of all, what was the motive there? How was that coordinated? You're all busy people, how could that be done? My well, first question. Well, I mean, we all we all did it for, for free for various reasons. Okay. Uh, mine being, I didn't think it'd be all that much work. <laughs> I thought the Washington lawyers would handle it, and you know, 18 months into a 40 witness hearing, I went, oh, this turned out to be a little bit more than expected. <laughs> Um, so that, that's part of it. The lawyers really split up the work, and Jay just, you know, shouldered an enormous burden with respect to the investigation. And look, um, I mean, all, all of us have different qualities or traits. My, my wife says I'm the most um, stubborn, uh, nice, nicest thing that she says about me, the most stubborn person she's ever met in her life. Um, if, if you don't have some level of persistence, you're not going to make it in this business. So once we all got into this and saw the injustice, it was not any great to our great credit that we stuck with it. It would have been impossible uh, to walk away. I mean, just what's the alternative? Eh, he's probably innocent, but what the heck? I, you know, I've got a real estate closing to do. My second week. question is that obviously I know a case very similar to this kind of case. That's why I'm here today. Um, in this uh, system, you speak of maybe two million people are in, incarcerated or on parole or whatever is part of this entire system. What percentage of these people who might be indigent or illiterate might be actually innocent? And, and well, what percentage do you think are people of this case, of this type, this type of case, and lesser cases that need some kind of redress out of two million people in the system? Well, I don't know if I can give you an exact number or a statistic, but what I can give you, you know, from my heart. I, mean, I worked for the New York Police Department for 20 years, and I mean, my job was to, you know, get the truth and hopefully arrest the right person. What I found since I went into retirement and then became a private investigator is an overwhelming amount of people, you know, and when I say overwhelming, I'm not going to put a number to it. I'm just going to, you know, my opinion and what I've seen, I mean, there's a problem out there. There are... I think a good number of people that should not be in jail right. for various reasons. And taxpayers are paying what, 30, 40,000 a year for their incarceration? They were, they were paying that 15 years ago. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> you go to college on that, right? Yeah. So there's something wrong. There's a business that's in fact. We don't, have a big, we don't have a big chart that we can show you, but if everybody can see this, um, it's two circles. Uh, with the lines going out, dividing the, the two circles, and there one is inside, completely inside the other, going out to the bigger circle. Imagine that the small circle is all those individuals who have been exonerated because we've proven with DNA that somebody else committed the crime. Okay? Those individuals, for the, almost all of them, were convicted because of false confessions, bad eyewitnesses, prosecutorial police misconduct, unfair judges, stupid defense lawyers, all the reasons people get convicted. Uh, but they were lucky enough to have some DNA evidence in there. So they got exonerated, right? There, for each one of those individuals, there has to be a multitude of other people, this much bigger circle, 
who were wrongly convicted because of false confessions, bad eyewitnesses, uh, police misconduct, unfair judges, stupid lawyers, jurors who don't pay attention, all the reasons that the other set was convict wrongly convicted, but they don't have DNA. So they're languishing in jail. And when I said that Marty was one of the lucky ones at this point, he really is. The number we won't know, but we know it's in the thousands, uh, probably in the tens of thousands. And being a, either as a prosecutor, I've been a defense lawyer now, I've been in the system for 23 years. When I said it's a train wreck, I meant it. It is a train wreck. So if you think it's a small percentage, I would beg to differ. Let, let me say a little more about the numbers. Uh, because nobody can attach a number to wrongful convictions. But if you take those DNA exoneration cases where we know the most about and extrapolate, in the cases where there, I think that number of the Innocence Project is now at 234. If you ask the people at the Innocence Project how often when somebody, some prisoner claims they're innocent and there is DNA to go back and test, how often does it turn out that they are innocent, that they are exonerated? The answer is about 45% of the time. There are tens and thousands of prisoners claiming to be innocent. And about 25% confessed. And, and about 20 to 25% so of the 25% of the DNA exonerates are in there because of the confession. And I think that you know is indicative of what might be going on in these squad rooms. You know, My third question, I'm sorry, is a little off the nature of the question. But why are these professional killers? It seems they came in with a motive. They, they separated these people. They went after them, whatever. That, I hate to say that. Why was the 17-year-old not also killed? Did he come in later? He wasn't aware they were there laying? I mean, why would they didn't go after the boy? They didn't know he existed, or well, why not? Why didn't they go after him? Go ahead, Jake. Okay, you know, I mean, I, I said it before, and, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not in, I'm not frightened to say it. I mean, it hasn't been proven yet. But as an investigator, you know, what things investigators do, they play with, with crime scenes or with scenarios in their head. And I think, you know, our investigation is, is close enough or just on the cusp of saying that. Marty lived, and I said it before. And the reason Marty lived was to be arrested. Could you imagine three people being murdered in Beltair, Long Island? It would have been another helter skelter. It would have been every major law enforcement coming in, and you know what? Maybe the case probably would have been solved. But this case ended within a couple hours with Detective McCready who testified that he didn't know Jerry Stoneman. You, you don't have to go there if you don't want. What um, a, Another reasonable explanation is that the, um, uh, Rich, Rick mentioned the, the glove prints. The glove prints were smeared right around the light switch in Marty's room. So it, it seems to me, without getting into McCready being involved or the police being involved, and they may or may not have been, um, but what happened was they went in, they did what they did to the father for whatever reason, they went down to the bedroom, they checked on the mother who was up watching TV. The TV was on uh, when the police got there. Uh, they went after her, they went in to check on Marty. The glove prints smearing where the lights on. Marty slept in a room that was soundproof because they expected they wanted to have another child and in a bunk bed kind of stuck into three walls. So it was almost like a cave. He was still asleep, they turned the light off and, and left. To, to sort of take to your direct question, since you're not too familiar with the case, uh, there was a poker game with the Valley players uh, previous night, broke up late at about three in the morning. Uh, Jerry Stewerman was one of the poker players, it was a regular group. Uh, 
one by one they departed. Uh, there was evidence at the trial that he was the last to leave, and in fact, uh, the, the guy who left before him, uh, there was a kind of a weird thing in the driveway where Stewartman should have driven out first. It would have been more logical, but he waved the other guy on. And the other guy testified at the trial that, that he left and went down the street and never heard, saw the headlights behind him. So there's strong evidence that Stewartman remained behind the scenario that seems you know, very plausible uh, and probable is that Stewartman went back into the house. Uh, uh, Creedon and Kent were hiding in the bushes. This is according to evidence that has now come out. Um, Stewartman either let them in, signaled for them to come in, we're at three in the morning. Um, professional killers, they were not. These were street thugs, uh, drug addicts, drug sellers, um, who we know had, uh, were doing a lot of crack just half an hour earlier. So, you know, people say, oh, this was a crime of passion, and these are, you know, professional hitmen, you know, because of all the, 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 the wild, you know, injuries and the, and the violence. Um, you know, guys, guys like that on crack, you know, mm -hmm. who, who knows? And, uh, you know, so three in the morning, and Marty's obviously sleeping, his mom is sleeping, or maybe he's woken up. So it all, you know, the, the, the scenario is completely uh, consistent. You know, the scenario that has come, come together now is completely consistent with the crime scene and what, what we know. Yes? Um, I'm just wondering if there's been any accountability. It's obvious from the investigative work that there were a lot of mistakes made and that, you know, Marty is, in fact, innocent. Um, are, is anyone still trying to prove the case? I'm wondering if McCready has been interviewed since. I wasn't sure if that 48 hours was after the exoneration or not. Is he still, you know, claiming that, you know, he's correct and Marty did, in fact, do it and he got off on, you know, technicality or what's the... Well, McCready is still claiming that Marty, you know, was the killer of his parents. The Well, the New York State Attorney General still has an open case, but any homicide case since Marty's conviction has been overturned is an open case. So, you know, hopefully the case will be resolved, and I'm hoping it's, you know, going to be resolved. You know, that our, the people that we claim have done, and I think we have evidence that I'm, I'm hoping they'll be arrested. Yeah, that's John Collins, the original prosecutor now who prosecuted Marty is now the bureau chief, right? I don't know if he's the bureau chief, but he, he actually has been uh, remarkably quiet. Uh, I mean, I, I, I know Mr. Collins, uh, we're not friends, but I've known him for almost 20 years. Um, and he's been remarkably quiet about the case. You know, if you want to bring it to the next step to answer your question. <clears throat> the reason that the Attorney General, Andrew Cuomo, has jurisdiction for the case is that after the, the convictions were overturned, the Suffolk DA asked the governor and Elliot Spitzer to, uh, to do something that, that the, uh, Marty's legal team asked the judge to do two or three years prior, which is to uh, appoint a special prosecutor, primarily because the current DA, Tom Spoda, had been McCready's attorney in a, in a case after McCready retired, and so one thing leads to another, I could speak for three hours, but uh, McCready um, uh, assaulted somebody on St. Patrick's Day, in fact, uh, after he retired and was, and was charged with a, with a felony assault. Tom Spoda, who now the DA, 
who was responsible for, for fighting to keep Marty in those four years, was McCready's attorney in that case, um, had also been the defender of McCready and other uh, detectives when the State Investigation Commission investigated the, the practices of the homicide squad. So uh, there was reason for him to step aside and, uh, and allow a special prosecutor. After the exonerate, after the, the overturn, uh, uh, the Attorney General was appointed special prosecutor uh, January 2008 and spent the next six months going back to litigating, reinvestigating from the beginning, which was the proper thing to do. After six months, uh, the first question being whether Marty would be retried. Six months, they come into court and announce they're not going to retry Marty. They also say they're not going to pursue uh, anybody else. And the, uh, the, the Deputy Attorney General filed a, a, a motion, court papers, uh, kind of explaining you know, what they did over these six months. The DA had brought a couple of people in earlier during the 440 hearing. And the primary one was a gentleman named Brian France who was in for murder, uh, neo-Nazi skinhead Satanist, as one other inmate called him, and uh, volunteered, wrote to the DA when the case was going on, that Marty in, in the law library one had admitted to him. And he claimed that he had been reading about the story, in, about the case in the New York Times. So right there, you, know, you don't see this guy reading the Times. But, uh, and uh, offering information, and, you know, by the way, I'm up for parole pretty soon, so, you know. And his, his sister told Jay and, and told me uh, that her brother, since he was seven years old, would say anything to anybody to get something. And it was, it was obviously patently absurd that Marty Tankliff, who spent 17 years, and, and literally every day of those 17 years doing something to get out of prison, writing letters, I mean, the famous 50,000 letters, I, you know, I've only been involved in this in four years, and I've, I've probably gotten 150 myself. I, you know, I couldn't really help him. I'm just writing a book, but you know, he's writing, he's writing uh, to everybody. He's he's researching. He's becoming an expert every day. And then one day, in the middle of this, he turns to this guy he barely knows and says, "Oh yeah, I did it. I killed my parents." Now the Suffolk DA actually brought this guy in was and was going to put him on the stand and expects people to, to believe this is credible and this is an honorable way to do business. And the Attorney General is citing the same thing, without a name, blindly, in their papers that they submit to the court. And the reason for this was that it was a completely political decision, which was they're going to do this, and they're going to they're cut Marty loose because that has to be done, and they're going to bury it. They're going to stop it right here. And so they throw this thing out, he made admissions, to this and that, to sort of convey this idea that this is just too ambiguous. This case, it'll never be solved, so we're just going to just let it go. So, it, to this day, the case, the truth is being suppressed, and to sort of ring around to the beginning, corruption, that, that is corrupt. You know, that the highest law enforcement officer of the state of New York is, to me, I believe, you know, actively trying to keep the lid on what went on here, because I think it would uncover so much about Suffolk County and like it's, it's a whole other thing with, with drugs, and I don't know if Jay wants to talk about that. Yeah, but we have time to one question. You haven't asked a question. Yeah. Okay. Um, I was just reading on martytankclub.org for the event that Stewart and the, the 
business partner. Um, during the investigation, he changed his alias, faked his death, moved to California. I wanted to know what, what was that about, and I mean, you find that suspicious. <laughs> 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 Charlie could have done a better job running this investigation. I mean, all the evidence. Well, they do that prior to the trial. Why he was still convicted? Exactly. That's what I mean. I mean, how, this is a week after the murder. Right. And how? On what ground can you know? Can you still go after these people? And what would be the process of? Well, we, the body's defense team cannot. I mean, not you, obviously, but would, can these people still be held responsible? Yes, sure. I mean, it's still an open case. I think, uh, you know, I think our team gave them a, a beginning. The attorney general or whatever, you know, law enforcement is going to be investigating this case. I think we gave them a couple of good targets, and I still say our case is a lot more compelling than a confession that didn't even fit the crime scene. So, you know, you know, a little frustrated, or you know, I really think that you know should have been indicted and we should let, let the uh, a jury in Suffolk County decide if we have it right at this point. And also, like, maybe a little background information on how that, how Stewart changed his alias and moved to California and how he faked his death because that wasn't completely clear. And I mean... Did you leave the family? book? He actually... And I don't know if I'll get all the details, but he brought his car someplace, abandoned it, uh, took money out of uh, several bank accounts, um, and changed his hair weave, <laughs> which may have had some forensic significance to it, be, be, because they, well, they, 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 there was some talk of um, hair being found from a, a wig or a toupee. So he changed his hair weave, fled to California, and was living under an alias. Well, I mean, you, you, so Everybody you, but the for people that don't know, know the whole story, I mean, why did he flee? Because you have to remember that unfortunately Marty's mother passed that day. Marty called 911, right? Marty called the police for help. His father was still living. If Marty would have fled at that time, yes, Marty might have did it. Yeah, there was talk that his father really was going to come out of the coma. And maybe Mr. Stewartman didn't really think that when he did, he accused Marty of committing a crime, but he may accuse um, Jerry Stewartman. Stewartman knew from the card, the card players, and this is something that you know we never came out and found, and it's in the book that the card players got together a few days after to you know talk among themselves. About what do you think happened? Because they all knew Stewartman was nuts, and they all knew Marty was just this kid, and. You know, they, they got together and they all suspected Stewartman. And one of them was particularly friendly with Stewartman and it all sort of fits together that Stewartman disappears. And, you know, Robert Gottlieb tells about calling the, um, the, the uh, prosecutor when, it, when they learned that Stewartman was missing and said, you gotta, you know, you gotta go back, to, you know, this changes everything. And Jablonski, the, the uh, prosecutor said, what do you mean? This doesn't change anything. He confessed. We know, you know this has nothing to do with it. And that was sort of the sort of that that was the beginning, at least the beginning of of the real cover up of this in Suffolk County because the entire DA's office and police and took the position that this disappearance was just just some guy who's kind of weird and couldn't take the pressure. His wife, you know, died a year earlier and this and that and um, and people bought it. And I have to admit that. I was a reporter at Newsday at the time. I wasn't covering the case, but just kind of following it like any reader. And I kind of, 
I, I, remember, I remember thinking, boy, that is weird. That is really suspicious. And somehow they, they put out this story when they found him in California and brought him back that, you know, well, you know, maybe, maybe it is just some weird thing that this guy was going, you know, who knows? So, um, I mean, the fact that we, we've talked for an hour and a half or two hours and only now kind of got to this thing, it tells you how many, you know, that the case is just every corner there's something. I said about an hour and a half ago that you couldn't make this stuff up, and, and I meant it. And the other thing that I didn't get to say is that an hour and a half later, these guys haven't even scratched the surface. Uh, and, and, and the details the details are in the book. Uh, so let me uh, let me kind of adjourn this session, tell you that there are books, there are uh, authors willing to sign the books. Hang around, there's Marty Tech. Marty, could you at least get up and let me see you? He was just released for the first time, and uh, Marty had first written to me, and uh, must have been 20 years old in 1990. Uh, and, and you know, one of the stories that doesn't really get told here is uh, among the heroes, the real hero for his own rescue is Marty Tangler, who really did write thousands and thousands and thousands of letters uh, to people getting their assistance. Um, and I was lucky enough to have him out and about for this Legal Aid Society talk, and. He agreed to come and surprise the crowd. It was just a scene because the New York legal uh, uh, community knows all about this case, and everybody has known for years uh, that this was a bad case. And, and in fact, this was so unprecedented. At one point, 31 former prosecutors signed in a petition urging the court to grant him a new trial. So this this case is just, in, in many ways, unique and on its own. So thank you for coming. Say hi to Marty. And, uh, Thank you.